Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich, and joining me today is Dr. Terry Olivet. Terry, you want to introduce yourself and tell us about your educational background and what you're doing now, please? Sure. I am a veterinarian. I currently work at the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine in the food animal production medicine section. Um, I'm originally from the East Coast, though, not the upper Midwest, I'm from northern New York, where I went to vet school and graduated from Cornell in 2004. Um, I practiced in... Um, private practice for a few years in northern New York, back around my hometown, um, until about 2007 when I went back to school, back to Cornell, and did some specialty training in large animal internal medicine, working on you know, a variety of large animals in the hospital there. And it's during that um, stint that I kind of got my interest in doing real clinical-based calf-level research um, during that program, and that kind of... Um, launched sort of my, um, I guess, foray into this academic world where um, I, I went on to do a PhD at the University of Guelph. Um, and it was during that program that I worked on um, validating calf lung ultrasound um, as an on-farm tool for evaluating pneumonia and respiratory disease in these young calves. So since 2014, when I finished that program and moved on to UW, um, that's really been a big focus of, of what I do. Yeah. And uh uh, we're at our AABP recent graduate conference. Uh, uh, Terry is speaking here. She's been a speaker at AABP conferences. Uh, she's a past emerging leader for AABP. Uh, I was just looking at that list the other day and didn't realize that. So I uh, um, really appreciate all the educational resources you brought to the industry and, of course, to AABP, too. So we're today we're talking about uh, BRD diagnostics um, and some uh, ultrasound, uh, thoracic ultrasound. Um, so first, let's talk about uh, pathogen profiles. Why is it useful to know the pathogen profile in a herd? I think kind of broadly, the things that I think about is um, with understanding the pathogen profile or what viruses and bacteria are contributing to disease in your calves is that first off from a bacterial standpoint has to do with your treatment protocols and are we treating these calves with the appropriate antimicrobials from a sensitivity standpoint from um, a susceptibility um, perspective and also i think it also um, ties into our vaccination protocols so understanding which pathogens are there we can gear our vaccines towards those organisms instead of vaccinating them against pathogens that aren't present on the farm so besides you know understanding the potential efficacy of your antibiotic protocols um, and your vaccination protocols um, two other reasons why understanding what the pathogen profile um, can be useful is is using kind of it as an indicator of change before something catastrophic happens in the calf. So kind of more of a monitoring tool um, and then using it more directly when you do have a higher incidence of morbidity or mortality um, or treatment failures in those calves. So you may have a change in pathogen profile um, that might help you understand why you're seeing what you're seeing in the calves. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, how this can be used to assess producer's case definition for BRD. You know, I, I know when I was in practice, you know, you'd go out there and the guy'd say, well, I'm having these calves are all dying of, of, of scours and you cut them open and their lungs are blown, right? So how can, uh, you know, doing these tests help uh, veterinarians make sure that the producers are, you know, identifying the case definitions correctly? Yeah, I think 
because there are other conditions that can mimic or look like respiratory disease, I think having the opportunity to do some diagnostic testing um, really gets you in there to look at the animals um, and see if they even have the risk factors and the, the pathogens. Of course, it's you know, respiratory disease is, is what we call multifactorial. So it's it's not just the presence of a bug that makes them sick. It's many other things that culminate in, in disease. But um, sometimes we can be kind of misled down the wrong path um, when we're just simply looking at a cat that maybe is breathing hard um, or is kind of droopy and not eating. And it may be septicemia. It could be a viral problem, not a bacterial problem. So um, understanding that pathogen profile can kind of help that um, producer and help your involvement in how those animals are managed. Yeah. And, you know, I know probably a lot of our veterinarians are familiar with the major uh, BRD bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens, but maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, what the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Lab, what are you seeing? What are they seeing as far as the pathogens? Is Are we seeing increased resistance to those pathogens? Yeah. So I, I think overall, we're seeing the same trends that we've seen a long time for a long time as far as which bugs we're identifying. It's Pasteurella multacida being the most common bacteria, um, followed by Mannheimia and Mycoplasma bovis. Um, from a viral standpoint, um, we're seeing a lot of coronavirus, and those are in you know general respiratory samples um, uh, from a variety of typically dairy-type animals. Mm-hmm. Um, from a resistance standpoint of the bacteria, we did just do a study that was published recently where we compared retrospective data from the last 10 years and actually found that for at least Pastorella and Viverstenia and Histopolis um, that from a antimicrobial resistance perspective, it's pretty stable. If anything, it's actually a little better for most antimicrobials um, in the most recent five years. Mannheimia hemolytica is a little bit of a different story. We are seeing a little bit more um, resistance um, against um, multiple antibiotics um, with that bacteria. So that's something that if for instance, if you're experiencing treatment failures or trying to help a client through a treatment failure issue, um, I probably tend to, to suggest that you try not to focus on just a, an antibiotic or a drug bug issue. Right. Um, but if Mannheimia is on the farm, there is maybe a little more potential that um, it could be a potential susceptibility issue that's contributing to treatment failures. Though you definitely would want to rule out the, the people factor. Yes, <laughs> always, always. So. <clears throat> One of the things that I think, uh, you know, I guess I struggled with in practice was knowing which calves to test. You know, so producers got a, a you know, pen of calves and, you know, I think that I can look at them and say, OK, you have pneumonia, you don't, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the respiratory scoring system that was developed at Wisconsin uh, has been used uh, a lot by veterinarians and producers. So can we just perform a physical exam and then say, okay, we're going to test this calf or not test that calf and why? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it comes down to why we're doing the testing, what questions we want to answer. And um, at the end of the day, what we really want to know is what pathogen is most likely initiating or instigating the disease process along with those other stressors in the calves. Um, And in order to understand what that primary or that first bug there is, we really need to find cases of disease very early on. So the problem with just doing a physical exam and finding a sick animal is that calves tend not to tell us that they're sick. 
And so <clears throat> by the time they look sick, they may have already had pneumonia or respiratory disease for, for a week or 10 days or two weeks or even longer, um, which means there's probably secondary opportunist um, organisms in there or even tertiary opportunists, which doesn't paint the picture that we need. If we want to manage or make an intervention, um, we're not going to make much headway by targeting it at those um, origin, or organisms. So probably then say, well, if you can't use you know, clinical exam or physical exam, then that's where we get into the lung ultrasound side of things, mm. because then that's going to look directly at the, at the lung itself. And the lung will tell you if it's healthy or not healthy, um, regardless of what the calf looks like. And so we can select our calves based on um, animals that do have lung disease, um, and we can find those animals that are at the youngest age uh, of those that are affected on the farm, which means that it's most likely an early or acute case, um, and then select those that, that haven't been treated previously um, to sample. They should give us our best bet at finding kind of what, what the first pathogen or the first bug in uh, through the door that's causing some of the problems. Okay. And you have uh, probably scanned more calf lungs than uh, well anyone that I know personally. Um, so let's let's give some of your tips for performing, you know, uh, thoracic ultrasound. I think first and foremost is um, taking the time to get training um, by somebody um, that understands the importance of the technique, the systemic, systematic nature of it. Um, there, you do need a little hand-holding when you first get started because it's, with ultrasound, you know, it's shades of gray and black and white, and it's easy to get your imaginoscope um, going <laughs> in your own direction. And we don't want to make a – our goal for using lung ultrasound is to make a better diagnosis. And so um, my first tip would be is just – figure out how you can get some training um, by, you know, there's a handful of us in the industry um, that are, are really out there doing this and teaching and training on it um, <clears throat> to make sure that you're doing a quality exam, ABP, pre-conference seminars, yes. um, you know, different local webinars, seminars, um, wet labs, that kind of stuff. And then it's practice um, and, you know, checking and rechecking and, um, you know, making sure that what you're seeing and what you're doing is making sense. Um, and then importantly, being careful not to make any drastic management changes based on that ultrasound information until you're confident that you're seeing the right thing and you're, you know, you're assessing the lungs um, properly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would encourage our members, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Olivet has done a couple of talks uh, on thoracic ultrasound at AABP. Uh, that was part of uh, her talks today. So find those on the BCICE portal and watch them um, and uh, uh, get your toes wet on that. And then, you know, if we offer the pre-conference seminar again, that's a great opportunity because you actually get a scan cab. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Thank so go ahead. On our Dairyland Initiative website, we do have um, training videos on there as well. Good. Fantastic. And we'll link that in the podcast notes too, uh, so everybody can find those uh, training videos. So I know that 
you know, you just published a, a paper on your, your project, right? And that was funded by the AABP Foundation. Talk a little bit about that and where it was published. Yeah, that paper, um, the first author of that paper was Elizabeth University, and she completed her master's um, degree with me. And that project was really one of the first ones to do a randomized clinical trial where we were out on commercial dairies and, um, you know, selected half the calves to get an antibiotic, half the calves got saline based on their lung ultrasound and their clinical scoring um, uh, criteria for a disease. And so basically looking at the effect of early aggressive intervention with antimicrobials. And it was interesting. It was, um, you know, a study that was carried out over about eight months worth of time. And we had, um, you know, a couple hundred calves enrolled. Very, the, the herds that we used were high prevalence endemic herds with respiratory disease. And so I think boy, 92% of the calves in these two herds um, were enrolled and treated um, with an antibiotic. And I think the biggest take home that we found was that a couple of things. Immediately following treatment with the antibiotic, we could see improvement in lung scores. Um, we could see that they were less likely to become clinical if they were subclinical um, to begin with in that, in that basically that initial week after they are first treated. But what then happened is actually we documented almost like a relapse where um, although they initially got better with treatment, um, I think about 80% of the calves still had lung disease, so they got worse again um, by the end of their study. And so most calves probably would have been treated um, between 25 and 30 days-ish, um, and then the study ended at about um, 52 or 55 days. And so they were showing some initial improvement, but then by the time they hit weaning, um, they they were doing what I say, they were not weaning clean. We want these calves okay. to wean with clean lungs. And although the large majority of them, their clinical signs had gone away, their lungs were still abnormal and still had pneumonia, um, despite multiple antibiotic treatments at that point. So the kind of disheartening take home from that was that we could win in the short term, but we're not doing something right in the long term because we're not curing these lungs um, in in the weeks following that pneumonia event. Hmm. Interesting. And as we said, that project was funded by the AABP Foundation. So Terry uh, received the uh, research grant, the competitive research grant that uh, that year. Um, and so we're also going to do a link uh, to the foundation's uh, website where we publish all of those. Uh, um, where we list all the all the winners and and uh, and their publications, so we'll put the link to that publication in there, and then we're also going to put the link to donate to the foundation because one of the things the AP Foundation does is they donate money to projects that have clinical relevance, and so that's the first thing the foundation does is they score the projects just on clinical relevance, and then they go to reviewers, and so. Uh, this is, these are things that you can, you know, you look at this and this is a service now that you can put directly into your practice, you know, so that's a great thing. I'd encourage our members to go uh, donate um, to the foundation to help support those. So how can veterinarians sell this service to their clients? What's the benefit to the producer and the calf, do you think? Yeah, I think what I've been finding from, it benefits both the producer and the calf, 
um, is something that I, I, I honestly didn't think it would go this direction, but because so many farms have such a problem with subclinical pneumonia, meaning that they have abnormal lungs without any outward signs for several days, a week, 10 days, two weeks um, before they get sick. What we're finding is that routine, it's, it's almost like a herd health for your calves. So weekly or every other week scanning of the age group that's most likely to get sick um, and then treating based off that, that lung ultrasound, what we're finding is that it's, it's actually making it a, a little bit more of an enjoyable place in the calf barn because now the caretakers, they don't have to, re they feel a little better because they don't have to rely on finding those calves as soon as they're sick to initiate treatment because it's taken care of because we're finding them with the ultrasound before they actually get sick. So fewer calves are getting clinical respiratory disease, they're growing better, and then a little bit further down the road, because we're usually in these herds, they're usually around 14 to 21, 28 days when we're seeing this pneumonia creep in. Um, but what we're finding is in the post-weaning period, actually, that um, those post-weaned animals are performing better and they're using less antibiotics to treat those calves after they leave the calf barn, um, which is a relief for the guys that are taking care of them yeah. um, in that post-weaning period. Yeah. So I'd, I'd never thought we would be scanning every single calf, um, but it, it's, it seems to be moving in that direction because we're just finding so much of the subclinical disease. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's almost every disease we deal with, right? I mean, we talk about mastitis, every veterinarian realizes yeah. it's the subclinical mastitis. Uh, uh, so we just have to uh, find those subclinically infected calves and with this yeah. tool, we can do that. So let's let's talk a little bit now about, you know, so we've identified the calves that we can sample. Let's talk about the different types of samples that you talked about today in your talk, maybe an advantage or disadvantage of each one. Yeah, so so we think about sampling the respiratory tract from different points. We can we could sample the upper airway kind of through the nasal passage, we could sample the back of the throat and the pharyngeal swabs, we could sample the fluid in the trachea, we could sample the fluid even further down into the lungs, the bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. Um, and we can sample the actual lung tissue, um, or we can actually look at blood and, and look at serum uh, antibody levels against some of these pathogens. And um, I think about it doing this diagnostic testing in, in two ways. One, when you have an individual animal that you want to know what is causing disease in this particular calf versus a herd level question where you want to know what is causing disease in most of the calves on this particular farm, kind of two different approaches that I take. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think it, first off with the nasal swabs, these are short swabs. Um, the, the, you know, the, bugs that live in the front of your nose or the front of a calf's nose and the nasal passages doesn't really reliably um, mirror what's going on in the lungs. And so we tend to stay away from doing those short swabs in the nasal passages. Um, speaking about the individual animal now, um, probably the best sample to take would be a sample of the lung fluid from deep down in the airways. And so that's bronchoalveolar um, lavage fluid. And um, there are several different techniques that you can use um, to, to, to collect that fluid. Um, some involve sedation, some don't involve sedation, some involve small volumes, some involve 
large volumes. Um, I was taught um, Dr. Sheila Gerg's method, which is under sedation with a large volume of, of sterile saline to collect um, high quality um, fluid, for which then we can look for the pathogens and attest susceptibility um, in that fluid, as well as look at cell counts and percentage of neutrophils and macrophages and um, the inflammatory cells in that lower airway. So from an individual animal perspective, that's probably gonna give you the best information. Okay. Um, from the herd level perspective though, you could do BALs, but they're, they are more intensive. They're a little harder um, to do than a pharyngeal swab. And so the deep nasal pharyngeal swab, which is my preference for assessing herd level pathogen profiles, um, I find are with a little bit of training um, quick to do. I do them by myself with minimal restraint um, and can provide um, reliable information regarding the pathogen profile in that herd. Okay. And so you, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the large volume on the BAL. Can you kind of walk us through the steps? Uh, you know, we know we don't have a, we don't have visuals here, but maybe, you know, walk through the steps of, okay, I, I have one calf with pneumonia. Um, I need to know what's in this one calf. Yep. The BAL is a preferred test, correct? Mm -hmm. So what, what, what are some tips for performing that yeah, test? So, um, so in general, um, again, my preference is the sedated high volume um, BAL. So you sedate the calf. Do you um, usually just give them xylazine? Yeah, is that, just, okay. yep, mm -hmm. just xylazine. And you can do IM or IV. A lot of folks will just do IM um, just to get them quiet. And they'll usually go and in, in, in be in sternal recumbency. Um, then you're going you're gonna to go through the nose with your Myla catheter. Um, and, and that's got a little balloon cuff on the end. And so it's going to be... Um, long enough that you're going to pass it through the nasal passages. It's going to, you're going to feel it kind of bump into the back of the pharynx. And then if you watch that calf breathe, when it breathes in, you know, the arytenoids of the, the, um, the vocal cords are going to open up and then you can advance the catheter, which usually comes with a stylet in it just to provide a little bit of support. And you're going to advance that down into the airway um, until it wedges into um, one of the distal airways, and then you can distend the cuff. Um, usually you can distend the cuff with air or a bit of saline, and we find that the saline distension works better. It holds the cuff in place better because what you're going to do then is flush um, the volume of sterile saline through that catheter into the airway and then aspirate it back out. And with that high volume technique, you're going to take 120 mils, so two 60cc syringes, and you're going to um, it, you know, express one 60cc syringe, and then you'll do the second 60cc syringe, and then aspirate gently back. You don't want to aspirate very hard and cause some negative pressure and trauma and bleeding. So gently aspirate back. And the goal is to get about 50% return. Um, so in, in that return fluid, what you're hoping to see is some bubbles. That bubble indicates that you're getting surfactant back, which means you're, you're getting an adequate um, BAL sample. And then you're going to repeat that process um, with another 120 mils of fluid. And so use a total of 240 mils of sterile saline. Okay. And then do you submit that whole thing to the lab? Yeah, or? usually um, talk to your lab that you're going to be using. They might have different preferences for how you actually submit that fluid. Uh, we tend to submit in a sterile specimen cup, so it is, um, you know, a large volume that we'll submit. But others um, may be totally okay with a smaller volume. It depends on 
exactly which tests you're looking for. So um, that larger volume, um, I think it, they like to see that when you're going to do this, the differential cell count, which is usually a 200 cell differential cell count. Again, so you get the percentage of neutrophils and other inflammatory cells um, in that sample. Um, and then also want to know which pathogens are going to be there. So again, culture and PCR for those common respiratory pathogens. Yeah. And good tip. It's always wise before you collect the sample, if it's the first time you've done it, to call the lab. <laughs> and they always will provide uh, excellent tips. I've always found that the labs that I used were were uh, uh, very uh, reachable. So make sure you were doing that. Um, and so then herd-based testing. You know, we talked about the, the deep pharyngeal swab test is the preferred test. Um, how many calves should we sample if we've got a pen of whatever? We got a pen of 10 calves or, or 50 calves. How many should we sample? And then can you walk us through those steps and tips up for that test? Yeah, our general rule of thumb is, has always been to choose six early affected untreated calves. And so um, from my perspective, this means calves that may or may not have clinical signs um, and may or may not have lung lesions or some combination of that. Um, but we want to make sure that they haven't been sick for a long time and then they haven't been treated before. So using the lung ultrasound, I would say calves that have what I call a score two or a three are in my mind the earlier on the earlier side of the course of disease and uh -huh. um, and so I, I look for that amount of lesion um, which means you know anywhere from a centimeter to three centimeters of lesion up to a whole lobe affected um i want to avoid multiple lobes and really severe pneumonia because that probably indicates maybe it's a little more chronic we're getting into some of those secondary opportunistic pathogens um, if a calf is, is visibly sick, so maybe they have a cough or a fever or they're depressed, um, showing signs of, of clinical respiratory disease, um, you know, as long as it's, again, a new case, they haven't been sick for a long period of time, they haven't been treated before, that would also be um, an appropriate case to sample. Okay. And then walking through, you know, you talked a little bit in your presentation about knowing that you have your swab in the right point yeah. and use it, how to use the shield to swabs. Yep. Yeah. So the technique that I was taught, again, going based off this idea that we want to try to avoid the nasal passages, so okay. stuff in the front of the nose, we want to get into the back of the pharynx. And the way the anatomy is set up is we have, uh, you know, we have our dorsal nasal meatus and then we have our ventral nasal meatus. And, and if we pass our swab too far dorsal in that dorsal nasal meatus, we're going to end up going into the ethmoids, um, which is not the pharynx, which is our goal. Um, usually you're going to know if you're at the ethmoids because um, some of the swabs actually make it quite helpful because there's a little uh, mark on the plastic um, about six inches from the end. But if you measure the distance from um, the opening of the nares to the medial canthus, um, that's kind of a general guideline for how far in the ethmoids are. So if you pass your double guarded mare uterine swab is what we use, a 33 inch double guarded swabs. If you pass it about six inches in um, or the distance from the, the nares to the medial canthus and you feel a hard bump and it will not advance any further, you know you're too far dorsal and you're hitting the ethmoids. So okay. you need to back out redirect more ventrally um, and try again. And usually, um, if you really direct more ventrally, then you'll end up being able to advance that um, swab um, much further um, past, you know, that six inches or whatever that distance was from the, the nares to the medial campus. <clears throat> and then you'll, 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 you'll come up against the pharyngeal wall, the far side of the pharyngeal wall, and it'll be more 
of a soft bump where the ethmoids are bone. It's a hard bump and you're not going to go past it. When you get to the proper place in the pharynx, because it's soft tissue, um, it's more of a, what I call that soft bump. And then it, and if you continued to put pressure on the swab, you could keep going and it would probably find its way down into the esophagus. So if you feel like the swab could keep on going, then you're probably in the right place, okay. but you don't want to keep on going. <laughs> Stop when you feel that soft bump. And then you're basically going to just back up a couple of millimeters. So the edge, um, the, the tip of the swab is not right against the pharyngeal wall. And then because it's a double guarded swab, what you're going to do is you then advance the inner sheath, which contains the swab through the external sheath, which protects it from all the pathogens that are in the front of the nose that you don't want. Mm. Um, and then you advance the, the swab um, till you hit against the far pharyngeal wall and kind of twist it, spin it around. Um, and I usually say 20 or 30 seconds. You want a good sample there. And then you bring that swab back um, into the internal sheath. And then what I do, um, my, my technique is to, because we need to get two swabs, one for the PCR sample and one for the culture sample, is I'll remove that inner, the swab and inner sheath and I'll leave the external sheath in place. And I'll take the inner sheath and swab from a new set of materials and pass that through the external sheath that I left in place. Um, for the from the calf's perspective, the part they hate the most is the initial passing through the ventral nasal meatus. Once you get the swab back into the back of the pharynx, they don't care. They just stand there and they're happy. Um, and so it's it's easier on me. It's easier on them. And from a from a testing standpoint or results standpoint, I haven't seen any issues with doing it that way. So it's a little easier on the calf. And easier on you to, to pass that second swab through the original external sheet. And then you break the swab off in a in a sterile tube, typically. Call yeah. the lab, but yep. you Call the lab. <laughs> and what you're going to want is you're going to need a tube for tra transport of bacteria. Um, so usually a culture, Amy's yep. media, mm -hmm. um, and then you'll need a tube that's got viral transport media or PCR transport media, okay. um, which you can get from your lab. And you put each swab in each one of those and keep them chilled and send them to the lab. Um, if you don't have that viral transport media, putting it in a sterile red top um, tube would be would be okay. Um, right. But again, talk to your lab and, yeah. and see what their preference is for right. that. PCR transport media. And the calves, you you restrain them. Do you restrain them yourself? Is I it do. Usually, well, okay. Kind of out of necessity, especially during the pandemic. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and again, remembering that I, I work mainly with, with the young calves, pre-weaning dairy calves, but up, even up to three or four months old, um, I do most of it by myself and I have them in the corner of a, their stall or their pen. And I, I tend not to halter them. I hold their, their head, um, you know, tucked in against my side, their butt in a corner, um, which is the saving grace. And again, the, the part they hate the most is that initial passing okay. through the ventral nasal meatus. And you just you just go and let them settle. And then, you know, I hold the, the swab once I get it in place um, with a hand on the, on the nose and the swab at the same time to keep that from moving any further in or out. And then I use my free hand to manipulate the internal sheath and, and swab. Well, those are really great tips, Terry. I really appreciate uh, you doing this podcast after uh, lectures all afternoon. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. I would encourage our listeners to find uh, the two talks that Terry just gave today at Recent Grad on the BCICE portal because you'll get the uh, videos and two uh, that she has. So those are really great talks. So, you know, as she talked about, 
we can use one of the reasons to do diagnostic testings for BRD is to assess your producers, uh, their ability to accurately uh, define cases. So that's a really great way for you to provide some oversight. Um, it's good to find cases early, and that's where thoracic ultrasound comes in play because uh, physical examination does not do that. It tends to find calves that are more chronically ill with more severe lung damage. Uh, Dr. Olivet recommended getting training to uh, learn how to do thoracic ultrasound, offer it as a service to your producers. She mentioned doing herd health visits for calves. We're used to, to uh, using the ultrasound for reproductive exams. You can really gain more value out of that piece of equipment by also scanning all the calves on farms as well. And she mentioned pick the right diagnostic test and pick the right calf. So use those uh, the diagnostic test of ultrasound to pick the right calf and then pick the right diagnostic test. Uh, she recommends doing the deep pharyngeal swab if we're doing herd-based testing and the uh, bronchoalveolar lavage for individual animal testing and offered some great tips for how to accomplish uh, uh, those tests for your farm. So um, encourage you all to get out there and improve the health of, of calves. Uh, and this is also a great way to improve antimicrobial stewardship on our farm. So, Terry, thanks so much. Thank you.